Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I'm your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is special guest, Lawrence Almeida. Welcome, Lawrence. Hi, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Lawrence, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. So I'm Lawrence Almeida, as you said, and I am a lead front-end developer at Unbabel, a company that specializes in uh, translation, AI-powered translations. And I'm based off of Lisbon, Portugal, which is where the company has one of its headquarters and the other being in, in San Francisco. And yeah, I mean, I am currently leading the development of a self-service platform that our customers use to interact with the services that we provide, the linguistic, the linguistic and language operation services. And yeah, I'm happy to share with you what we do and how we feel that. <laughs> Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. That's that sounds really exciting to work on. Well, yeah, I mean it is exciting because essentially what we do is we enable mainly customer support agents to to communicate in any language. That's our core value proposition, allowing our customers support agents to be able to speak any language even though they may only speak English, they're able to handle multiple markets in Italy or Poland or Japan, always using our services in the middle to support them in those in those uh, in those translations essentially. And is that spoken word or is it primarily text? No, it's it's primarily text, yeah. So okay. just to give you an idea, our customer will be using something such as uh, Zendesk, and we are seamlessly integrated with Zendesk. Every time they receive a request, for instance, in Italian, right? Because you're you're serving the Italian market, it goes through our pipeline that will pick that up, translating using it, uh, using either well, using a machine in the middle, using machine translation, and then using our translator community, which is one of the things that we do differently. And then we send that back to the to the support agent, translated into English, for instance. He will handle that, and we do the reverse thing. So he, the customer, thinks that he's speaking with a native Italian when, in fact, he's speaking with someone that just uh, is an English speaker, you know. But all of that is is written. Yeah. How fast is the turnaround on that? It sounds really complicated. Yeah. So we we have a method to analyze the quality of the machine translation, and depending on the score that it yields, it gets sent to a human translator or not, right? So if it's, if it's just machine translation, which many, many times it is, especially if it's a chat conversation, it needs to be uh, synchronous. So in that case, it's it's always a machine that ha- handles it. It's pretty like instantaneous. For longer things, usually like emails or FAQs or, you know, like just pages of a website or whatever that the customer wants to translate, that will take a bit longer, like a couple of hours or, or a bit longer, depending on the content and the, and the community as well. 
of the language that is being translated to. That seems really, I mean, first off, I'm just fascinated by languages in general. So this is is interesting to me, but also this seems like a really powerful (laughs) tool. Yeah, I'm going to. No, this seems like a really powerful tool, especially considering that it doesn't take days to to translate. I've seen some services that can take days or weeks to do a translation, but you're able to do it, not not quite real time because translation doesn't work that way, but it's very fast. Yeah. No, especially for emails, I think we are, I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, but I think we can get it up to like 10, 15, 20 minutes sometimes. It depends on the community, right? So imagine if you're translating to a smaller community in a language that is handled by a smaller community, let's say Polish to to Japanese, right? And that's there, there aren't many people that, that can do that translation, right? Because of that, it can take longer. But if you're doing for bigger communities, such as like, French, English, English to German, things like that. It's quite fast. And then many times it, it may not even be picked by, by a human translator because if the machine translation is good enough, then it just gets sent back to the... And the quality of it, it's good. It get, gets sent back instantaneously. And that's... Yeah, it's pretty seamless, actually. We empower a lot of, of uh, support agents with it. You, you mentioned there's a score when the machine translation happens. How is that score determined? Well, that's or is that the secret sauce? <laughs> that is a bit out of my league, but I there's there's been some. I think they just released. It's called Comets, and I believe that is the the way that that they. Yeah, I, I think you can check it out. It's called Undouble Comets, used to assess the quality of the machine translation. But I can be. I I, I may be bullshitting you. <laughs> Sorry for for bad mouthing, but because that's that's a bit out of my of my scope at the company. I That's really fine. only handle most of the uh, yeah it's uh, Comet's neural framework for MT evaluation and it just got out like it was very recent that they just published it I can link it back to you if you want yeah I'd love to get that in the show notes cool so Lawrence turning turning attention more to you how did you get into development what brought you into to programming in general well I, I've been programming for for many years since I was I would say in eighth grade. I got interested. I, I got into it. I think I saw some course that was going on for like at my high school, at my city's high school. It was a, a C course back then. I was like, that sounds interesting. So let's check it out. <laughs> and and it, indeed, it was interesting. And I ended up studying, specializing in, in the computer field while, while I was doing high school. You could back then choose like more humanities or or just science or IT focused high school. And so I did the latter. And yeah, and then I moved on to college, which I dropped out quickly and totally changed my degree and went into marketing and management. And I dropped programming for, for a couple of years, or at least four years, I think. And then randomly, well, not really randomly, but I ended up getting into a web agency because I wanted to, to build some, some stuff back then, some ideas. And through means, I ended up getting back into into programming, uh, doing Django, actually, the T-shirt that I'm wearing. And from that, then I just kept on programming and moved from Django to Meteor.js and then moved from Meteor.js to the full stack nodes, a few, you know, Mongo and so on, and ended up just doing mostly Vue and Nuxt. And that's what I, and Vue is my, my day-to-day work for the past four years, I would say, yeah. 
That's awesome. I, for those who aren't watching the video with us, I, I cringed a little when you mentioned C++, just from my own experience starting there. Yeah. I bet it was fun. a little refreshing to, that's one word for it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, what was it like switching? I mean, you, like you said, you, you went to Django after that break. What was it like coming back to programming and looking at Python as opposed to a C-based language? Well, I never used uh, C++ or and, and C as well. I was doing C and then C++. That was my main introduction to programming. And honestly, it was, uh, looking back, it was a bit, it is a bit cumbersome, right? If you compare it to Python. And so that was my main reaction was, well, things are missing here, or at least it, it, it appears to be the case. The other thing was that I would, like Django is a framework that, that is opinionated on how you build on top of it, right? And back then, the programming that I was doing in C was mainly uh, studying and very academic. So, you know, it's it's pretty basic and it's sort of like a couple of files. It's not like a framework or anything. So I, I can't really compare it. But then I started moving more towards JavaScript because I was doing Django and I was doing, let's say, well, full stack, you know, building the interface. I really enjoyed the, you know, like reactivity of jQuery and doing those all of those callbacks to get the page to reload dynamically instead of reloading the whole browser. That is what got me into Meteor because of the real-time updates and all of that that the framework enables you. And then I just went, all right, why not just use JavaScript everywhere instead of doing a lot of context switch between Python and JavaScript and CSS and HTML. All right, let's keep it simple, just JavaScript and that's the language that I opted to, to just stick with. And I, so far, it's been serving me well. Yeah, that's a very similar reason why I jumped into purely using JavaScript. I was using PHP and JavaScript. And while those languages are a little closer together than Python and JavaScript, and that they're both dynamic and they're, they use a lot of the same syntax, I didn't want to do that context switching. And it was yeah. just so nice to just use one language front to back in an application. I agree totally. Many times you will get the the opinion, which is valid, that choose the language for the job that you're doing. And I totally agree with that there are jobs that JavaScript would not be the ideal uh, or not even work. But at the end of the day, context switch does pay a toll. And so that's a valid reason to to want to do JavaScript on a server and the client. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned that you've been working with Vue and, and you got to work with Vue and Next uh, professionally. What yeah. interested you in those frameworks as opposed to continuing to work with Meteor or I would assume that was React? No, it wasn't React, actually. I was just oh. using, I think it's Mustache or, or Handlebars. I don't recall. Oh, okay. Yeah, it wasn't even like a, a front-end, any front-end framework per se. I, I never did React. So <laughs> I'm a pure Vue developer. And we found a purist. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not against React. I just never, I was always more attracted to Vue and I can't really tell you why. Back then, we, were, we weren't we were using any framework at the agency that I was and we were pondering what should we use, right? And I knew that GitLab used Vue and I, and I do enjoy uh, GitLab as, as a company, as a product. And so I think I was kind of the, all right, so um, Vue is catching up. It seems simpler to learn. The learning curve is simpler. It's pretty robust. These guys are using it more and more. Companies seem to be adopting it. I'm going to bet on this one. And I think it's paying off, honestly, if you, if you look at the adoption. 
of course, React is always ahead because it was earlier and has a larger ecosystem, I guess, and Facebook behind it. But if you look at it, Vue view has caught up really, really well and is very much used nowadays. It's not like it's a, it's a, bit, a pretty good uh, competitor of React, I would say. I would agree with that. I and not just for bias purposes. I, I just <laughs> I have the dev tools for both React and Vue installed in my main browser just yeah. so I can see what pages are using what. And I okay. feel like it's it's fairly 50-50 at the moment when I'm going to different pages, whether I'm going to see a React icon or a Vue icon. Yeah. And I feel like we're also getting a lot more big name yeah. companies or organizations that are using Vue. I mean, when I started using Vue, I was also pointing at GitLab saying, hey, they're they're a big company. They're doing great stuff with Vue. We should be able to do it too. And I was using that as a as an argument yeah. for why we didn't just need to use React. But no, I, I totally agree with you. It was hard to sell it because like, oh, no one is using it. So is it safe? And nowadays that, that argument isn't valid anymore. But go ahead. Yeah. No, the one I was going to mention is the uh, recently the Wikimedia Foundation was making the rounds on Twitter and Reddit for adopting Vue as their front end framework. Yeah, I just—it's really interesting that there's all these these larger companies. Nothing's larger than Wikimedia on the web, so it's it's just interesting that we have all these examples of companies using Vue as opposed to React, and and we can actually say there is there is this competition, not not a rivalry because every, you know it's yeah, all JavaScript. Everyone's working together. No. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But it but there is this 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 friendly competition that's helping raise everybody up in the ecosystem, which I think is really healthy. Yeah, I totally agree. And and we can learn from each other and you can just choose the, the tool that best fits your company and your needs and the time that you have. So I think both are, are great to have. I just ended up preferring Vue. I, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, because it's better. I didn't say that. Uh, uh, <laughs> Anyway, so Lawrence, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show today was you wrote a blog post about setting up a micro front end with Vue and a framework called Single SPA. Yeah, I personally haven't worked too much with micro front ends. I saw the saw it as a buzzword that was going around and things were happening in that ecosystem, but it wasn't something that ever impacted me in my professional work. But it sounds like you're using that kind of architecture in your job. Is that correct? That is right. We are using it, and it's been live for almost a year in production, used on a daily basis by our customers. So, yeah, what, what can I tell you about it? In Two years ago, we were planning building our own SaaS platform for our customers to essentially interact with us on a self-serve way. Because recent, uh, until, well, until last year, they would mostly engage through uh, our own customer support for any any requests such as what is my usage, when is my billing going to renew, like all of those sort of customer things, we did not have that. Moreover, the idea is to build a whole platform that empowers not only the customer to get his report, but also our internal operations in terms of retraining our algorithms, monitoring the quality of translations, setting up all of the tooling that we need to support our, our customers. The fact that we have this model goes really well along having a micro front-end architecture. So micro front-end is the same principle of, as microservices, but applied to the, to the front-end, where you have a web app that is put into pieces. And the way that you break those pieces is up to you as how you have your team set up, how you design like the responsibilities of your team. So you can have a team that handles all that is the search-related functionalities, right? So they handle all of the search, let's say, modal that shows up, and then you type in something. 
and then you have a, a list of results, and then you go somewhere else. All of that can be owned by a single team, meaning the whole modal experience can be a micro app, which is a view app by itself that lives within this architecture. And then they have the backend team, they have the data team, and they all work autonomously delivering that feature without necessarily affecting anything from the rest of the app, right? So when they deploy, it's it's decoupled from the, the repository. Like it's a multi-repo architecture, so you do not affect the other repos. They can work in parallel, they can work at different speeds. All of that was very interesting to me, right? In, in, in theory, micro frontend allows you to do that. Then how do you actually do it? Well, that's where single SPA comes in. And single SPA is a tool developed by Joel Denning, uh, mainly. It's from a company that I'm forgetting the name now. It's a US company that developed for themselves. And single SPA, the principle is pretty simple. It's a sort of router, okay, that controls which of your view apps, in this case, we're talking about view apps, but they could be React, they could be Svelte, they could be whatever you want. Single SPA controls the loading of your app within the DOM, depending on a function that just returns a Boolean, true or false. And that, that function can be according to your URL. So if you're on slash search, we're going to mount one specific view app. If you have the role admin and you're in the role search, then we may load a different app, for instance. And so single SPA essentially controls which apps get mounted into the DOM, depending on the criteria that you define. So right now, I think we have 17 view apps under this architecture. I would say six of them are handled by my team directly. And my team is also the one that handles the whole architecture. And then another team handles the internal apps. That should be maybe also six apps or they're growing. They're like, that's the thing. Like there's just creating new apps and we don't necessarily need to be in sync on that, on that sense. And we have a third team, which is the integrations where we have the marketplace where you can install the integration with Zendesk or, or Intercom or whatever that you use. And that's, they handle a specific app for themselves. So all of those are, are view apps loaded within this this single looking website but it's actually multiple view bundles being mounted or unmounted depending on where you navigate who you are as the user whether a feature is enabled or not uh, single spa controls all of that on your behalf it's a pretty it's not a linear architecture for sure <laughs> yeah so we're talking about all this and my mind is going through how do i handle Global state management. Yeah. Do I need to handle global state management? I think one of my first questions, though, would be, so we talked about how how all of these are separate apps and separate repositories that are then merged together into a single SPA website. What does that process look like so that, first off, all of these repositories are getting put together into a single tool, but also, is that are you then having to worry about, for example, you have multiple view applications. Do you need mm-hmm. to worry about multiple view bundles and yeah, loading that is, the end user? That is usually the first, that was the first question when I presented this architecture to, to my team, but it was precisely that. And the happy thing is that single SPA not only allows you to, to load modules, which are your apps, it also handles the dependencies. So basically you tell single SPA through a JSON object where to find your whether that's view, whether that's uh, Axios, for instance, or your apps, where to find them. That's the URL of the of the bundle of the module that you have, and then you only need to load once view, and then your apps 
are don't get mounted with Vue itself, right? You just tell on Webpack, hey, Vue is an external dependency, and so that it doesn't get bundled. Same thing for Vue router or the or the store if you need it. And so this orchestrating layer that is a is a simple HTML and JavaScript file, right? So the the orchestrating layer is just your entry point to the app where single SPA lives, loads your dependencies, loads your micro apps, and and then just bundles it together and mounts depending on on which URL or or other criteria. So no, you do not load view and every time you load or unload apps, that's that's a cool advantage of this of this tool. Yeah, I, I mean, I assumed that was resolved, but it, that, that's my first thought. Like, oh dear, I'm going to have 17 bundles. What do I do? But uh, no, that makes a lot of sense that it it handles that kind of thing for you. Yeah. Um, so I guess my second question would be the global state management. So if yeah. I'm building an application, let's say I'm using Nuxt and mm-hmm. I authenticate my user that's stored in Vuex or maybe a cookie or something or both. Mm-hmm. And as I navigate between pages, I don't need to worry about fetching the contents of that cookie every time it's stored in Vuex. But if yeah. you're traveling between multiple Vue applications, doesn't your global state management get reset between the applications? So the way that First, there's like a couple of principles that have been established, not by us, but our team adopted it because they, they totally make sense. And the first is your micro apps should be unaware of each other to the best of, of their ability, right? So your app, which handles user management and some other team's app, which handles some other features, some other functionality, those two different apps have their own view store probably to handle whatever they need but the authentication is done a redux store that was a a choice that we made and this store lives on the in the orchestrating layer right so there's this top shell if you want which controls which apps get loaded controls loading other dependencies there is another project which is also loaded as a module that simply has shared dependencies to be shared across apps such as the Redux store. So when you arrive to your entry points that does all of that, we use Keycloak for the authentication. So Keycloak just basically tells us he can log in, otherwise send him to the login page and send him back. And once we get the Keycloak data from the user, we store it on this global store. We call it global store because it's accessible by any any micro app. So you can always check who is who is logged in, you know, uh, who is the user, who's the customer, a couple of other shared info points that apps may need to use. And you can access that through a mixing utility that we built in. So all of that a global store is accessible through this global store, and then you can access the user, things like that. To answer your authentication, another example is Axios. We have built a wrapper around Axios itself that is provided by the orchestrator. So if you are a micro, if you are the owner of a micro app and you want to use, uh, you want to request something to one of our backend services, what happens is when you arrive to the entry point, Keycloak authenticates you. It stores it in the global store that you can use that data for, but we also store the authentication. So we set the authentication header to this unique Axios instance that is shared across all micro apps. So you, when you want to do a request to one of the services, you just do this, uh, you just do like API, which is the name we exported it with, api.get, which is a wrapper around Axios. And everything is, is ready for you to use. You don't need to worry about authentication. You don't need to worry about token refresh. All of that is handled by the orchestrating layer. 
you as a as a view micro app developer don't need to handle that. And it is also shared across all micro apps. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So is this orchestrator, is that like adding values to the global scope, or do you still need to import them into each of the view applications? Single SPA, when you use single SPA, regardless of the framework, in this case, view, essentially what you're doing is you're telling your app you're not going to get mounted on the uh, usual app ID uh, div, you know. You're going to get mounted somewhere else. And that somewhere else is where single SPI uh, comes in. So if you do have a layout of a side navigation and a main area, which is why we have, the side navigation can be handled by a specific team. And the main area are multiple apps that get loaded or unloaded, depending on where you are. In order to be able to do this mounting and unmounting, you need to wrap uh, some utility functions that single SPA provides you in your main GS view app so that single SPA can control the mounting and unmounting. There are a couple of lifecycle functions like bootstrapping, mounting, and destroying, something like that. And when you do that, you can provide data to your app as if you were passing props. You know, So when you're mounting the app, you can say, hey, here's a couple of, of info that I can that you can have access into your own state once you're mounted which can be the API, can be whatever you want, you know, like other other info that you want to pass it. And then your app gets context of that. In our case, it's mainly the API service, the global store. And we also have a PubSub utility because some of the things, some things your app is going to trigger some state change, global state change, but not directly to the store, always through your orchestrator. So that every app is not trying to override each other or anything, you know, they all need to go through the main layer where the store is. So, yeah, to answer your question, you can pass you can pass this uh, context when you're mounting your app through a single SPA. Yeah, the easy answer is that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I appreciate that context. That that helps put it into context, I suppose. No, this this is really good. I'm enjoying this. I'm looking through the blog post as you're talking and trying to follow along as well. Uh, yeah, we'll make sure the link to the blog to the post. Image, yeah, yeah, it's it's better <laughs> because there is a, an image that gives you this idea of how how things are bundled, how things are are kind of loaded. For instance, this this utility project where the store, uh, the API, leave is not a view project, but it holds uh, view components that are to be reused across micro apps, right? So we have our own component library, which is a separate project, totally separate that we do use as well but other projects that are not in this context also use. And then we have custom-specific components that are not meant to be in our reusable library, but they need to be reused across micro apps. So this project also provides you those components. And then you can just import it normally as you would from this external dependency, like card component or you know, like a, a chart, whatever that is. And you can do the same thing with mixins. So there's a couple of mixins that are shortcuts provided by the orchestrator, like the current user, the role of the user, things like that. And then your app can only do like this dot username and he has access, uh, the app has access to it. Same thing for CSS. Everything is in that single project and it's shared across apps. Right. Two 
questions still in my mind, and I'm sure there'll be more as we keep talking about this. This is this is, this is just a really fascinating way to think about building an app for me. And actually, this talk goes back to an episode or two ago where we were talking about how Vue is ideal for this kind of situation where you only want to render it in a piece of an, a website as opposed to doing an entire SPA. So I, I feel like doing a micro front end actually fits really well with this. But my, my first question would be, you, you mentioned that there's the sidebar and there's the main content. Are, are those two separate apps as well, or is that just separate components? Could you, or better question, more in general, could you, using single SPA, render two separate apps on the same page at the same time? Would that even work? It does work. And to answer your question, I, it's an overkill, but our top navigation and our side nav are indeed uh, view apps. Although you could have them as just vanilla JavaScript, as you know, just a module that does that. But back then, for, for, for sake of speed and lack of time to research, we just went with that. So we always have three view apps that are rendered in, in any screen, which are the side navigation, the top navigation, and the main area that you have. And that was one of the doubts that I had when researching this was, how do you control the layout? How do you control the disposition of, of the displaying of these apps, right? How do you say this one goes here and this one goes here? That was, that was something that we had to research. But essentially, you need to have just vanilla CSS and some vanilla JavaScript on the orchestrating layer, where then through media queries, you just control the div elements that will receive the mounted apps, right? So your mounted app is always within a placeholder that is in your top level index file, the controller. And then the, the app could be full screen, could be half of the screen. The app doesn't know where it's being rendered, you know. That is the orchestrating layer that controls the responsiveness or the placement of, of a specific app. And so in some cases, we have some interfaces that need to be full screen. So we'll, we will just say, unmount the site navigation, collapse the site panel uh, placeholder div, and just let the main app be rendered as a full screen app. And then the app itself has its own responsive built-in, but that's up to the developer to, to decide how that, is, how, is, how that is done, let's say. So yeah, you can have multiple apps for sure mounted. Whether or not you should is a different question, but it's, that's really cool that, yeah. that you, can't, you do have that flexibility if you need to. Yeah, that is right. And you can even have, and now be warned, you can have a React and a Vue app working side by side seamlessly without any, any hiccup. And that was also one of the reasons that I wanted to, to use this architecture. Because even though I love you, you may not be adequate for specific use cases, you know. Or in five years' time, maybe something else came out and we want to slowly, gradually decouple view from this, from this product or experiment. And you could also have like view three running along view two because single SPA can also provide dependencies depending on which micro app you want to mount. So you can also do that. But when I said that some folks were like, uh, so can I can I do React now? And like, no, no, we're still doing Vue, you know. But it's nice that you can have that flexibility in the future if you would want to experiment or for some reason you, do, you need to have a custom micro app that renders something else. You can do that. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's a great way to future-proof yourself as new versions of Vue come out or some other great framework comes out that you want to try out. Uh, yeah. One of the, I guess he gave us a number of talks. So Richard Feldman, who's, uh, who works at No Red Ink, he's, he's one of the big people in the Elm community. He's always talking about this incremental approach to, to adopting Elm at a company. And it, his main 
suggestion is always just do it in a small place in one point in your application, see how the experiment goes and expand from there. Use it, but bringing it into a full either view application or react application or something like that, that can be more painful because you end up with the multiple bundle issue. But using a, a micro front-end architecture or single SBA could help alleviate that problem as you're doing your experiment if you want to grow yeah. out. Yeah, for sure. So that's really cool. Yeah. The other question I had was, if let's say I'm on a given application, I got there from the URL, and I need to have sub-routes within that application. So let's say I'm on a uh, profile page, and I want to get to security, or I want to get to preferences. Am I able to then use the view router within the application, have a custom configuration, and, and build that all out? Yeah, yeah, you are. So once your app gets mounted by single SPA, you're in a regular view uh, universe, right? The thing is, and, and it's true that our setup for now, it, it's still a bit hard to... The, the binding between the routes and your, your micro apps is a bit uh, strong. So let, let me tell you what that means. When single SPA essentially cares for mounting or unmounting your view app. And it does so by whatever criteria you tell it. Uh, usually it's which URL am I? Am I on slash profile? All right, so the function returns through the activation function, the one that tells single SPA to mount the app. But you can also say, is the user an admin? Do I have this interface turned in my flag configuration and any other criteria that you want? As long as everything returns true, single SPA will mount it. So we have a configuration object that describes all of the apps. So you have app number one, app number two, App number one has these roles that can hex it. It's just an array of roles. And the URL is slash profile. So when you arrive to slash profile, your app gets mounted. Now, when you're using a router, the view router, you need to tell it that the base URL is also slash profile. Otherwise, the router doesn't know where to mount, uh, to render the routes. But as long as you, you respect this base URL, then the rest is up to you, right? You can have use it regularly as, as you would. That's the only constraint that you need to respect. Is there any issue with using history mode or hash mode? Do you need to use hash mode or are you safe to, to do whatever you want there? No, they are they are both. I think we've used both. I don't know which one is, is the one that we use now uh, mainly, but I know that we have had apps using either one or the other. A single SPA will also provide you a utility function to navigate between apps and it will handle the mount and unmount more great gracious, graciously than if you were to just refresh a page, you know. So, but yeah, we didn't have any problem with that. Okay. And yeah, this is sounding really, really interesting. I'm going to need to spin up a new side project. What are what are some of the downsides to to doing a micro front end or using the tools that you're using, in like single SPA specifically? Well, there. I would say I'm really happy with single SPA. Uh, when I researched what could be used, right? The first one was like, well, you can use iframes. And we all know that that's not really what we want. That is no. old school. <laughs> that is old school. And there are better ways nowadays. Uh, I think in the near future, you could even use like module federation and, and because essentially single SPA does module uh, loading through system.js. So in the future, you'll probably be able to do that vanilla. But right now, system.js does that for you. Single SPA is, is really agnostic to what you're loading. It just loads modules. It can be a view app, it can be another JavaScript module. So that's really, I like tools that are not too opinionated on 
on what you can use them with. So in regards to single SPA, I think it's pretty robust to be used in production. And I'm not saying that the, the way that we have built it and the, and which is what you have on the article that, that I wrote. It's a very lightweight and complete tutorial to do it. I would say it's it's very much usable. Micro frontends, the concept of micro frontends though, it does have drawbacks, which is the main one is that it's it's an architecture that most front-end developers may not have experienced. And so you need to wrap your head around how the lifecycle of all of your web app exists, right? It's not just your app. Your app exists at a point where other things have been initialized and you already have access to specific things or you don't have, depending. But so that is that is a bit weird to to onboard new new front-end developers that have started to work with us. But once you understand this life cycle that you have an orchestrating layer that has some part of the functionality, then you have a shared layer that has the store, the API, the CSS that you can reuse and so on. That's another level. And then you have your app and you will be working on that app and you already have access to CSS classes, to CSS properties, utility functions like innumerables. I don't know, like you have access to a bunch of things. So we do have a thorough documentation to help developers know, should I rewrite the function to parse time or do I have access to one already in the shared utility folder, you know? And so that brings me to another, let's say, problem, which is people think, okay, my app is going to be very autonomous, very independent from the rest of the teams. I can just do air quotes, whatever I want. In fact, that's not really the case. You do need to communicate a lot because, well, you can't just mess the padding of your app. You know, you're building one app within a bigger app in a way. So in terms of visual consistency, in terms of, of normalizing the, the workflow of developers, that was a bit of a pain because we had developers working in different projects, kind of standalone. They're, they're in their own patterns of doing things. And because people can be working on one micro app or another micro app at some point, it's good to have some consistency on how you on what to expect when you go to someone else's code base, right? So that actually requires a lot more communication between the front-end devs. And that was a pain, but also a gain. On the long term, it is definitely a gain because it has uh, normalized and enhanced everyone's quality of codes and learning new things, you know, like learning new ways of doing things because you are kind of forced to, to review other micro apps uh, codes. But you need some governance as well. You need to to say, I want to introduce, I want to change the API method, you know, um, because someone needs to add custom headers. You need to be careful because you may be breaking someone else's app. You can't just simply remove some CSS because you could be breaking someone else's app as well. So that sort of distributed architecture gives some overhead in terms of, of controlling those changes. You need to be really careful because you could be breaking someone's app and we have some we have things in, in place to to avoid or minimize that the best that we can. Those are so it's much more complex to set up initially, but on the long term it gives you way more autonomy in experimenting, in incremental feature change, stack change, things like that. For sure. That helps. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And one one of the thoughts I had as you were describing that that governance is just like the the application needs an orchestrator to to manage the apps itself. The team needs an orchestrator, as it were, 
to, to make sure all of the different apps are being developed in unison. Yeah, I found out that this was a sort of healthy forcing function to align development within the front-end tribe because that's that was one of like things that I could use to our advantage to bring everyone together under this common umbrella and first have everyone understand where we were going for with the architecture, what were the risks, what were the advantages. Everyone chipped in, everyone advised on whether or not to use a store, what's the advantage of using like a pub sub mechanism to dispatch to dispatch messages or to log out the user, things like that. And so that was very, very positive for the for the front end tribe. I think right now we are almost 10, 10 developers. And at some point, it gets difficult to have everyone align on how to do things. So in this case, you were forced to to align. Otherwise, it will be a mess, you know. <laughs> and as a, as a benefit to, to requiring everyone to align, you have an application that has a little more unison, even though every team is working in fairly autonomous ways. Yeah, um, it, it's pretty nice to see nowadays people deploying in parallel, releasing into staging, releasing into, into production. And you can see uh, that happening seamlessly. It's pretty uh, cool to see. Nice. Lawrence, is there anything else that we have missed talking about micro front ends, talking about single SBA? Is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel is essential before we end? I mean, no, that's, it's, a deep, it's a deep topic. And any other company that you would speak with would have a different approach, even if, if they were using single SBA, because you can kind of do it any way you want. Kind of. So that's the way that we went for. And it's kind of described in the article. And it works. It's a good proof of concept to start and see how it works, basically. I, I, awesome. I think we are we ran by it. <laughs> excellent. Well, we'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for this article, which is excellent. Anyone wants to take a look. Uh, like was mentioned during the episode, there is a, a diagram of the architecture that you can take a look at and some good description of what's going on and how to set this up for yourself uh, using Vue as an example. But like you said, Lawrence, it can use anything. If by any chance you want to go for React, uh, I mean, you could do it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. At this point, we will move into picks. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Picks are the part of the show where we share things we like with the tech community that follows. It doesn't have to be programming related, just something that we like and want to share with you. Lawrence, you've been doing most of the talking, so I will go first. I have two picks today. First is a book that I've been reading named Project Hail Mary. I may have mentioned it before, I don't remember. And I won't spoil any of it because what I've heard is if you even read the description of the book, then you already have major spoilers. So I'm not going to say anything else. It's by Andy Weir, who's the author of The Martian. And it is a highly 
highly excellent book. I'm enjoying it thoroughly. I'm still in the beginning part. It is quite long, but it's it's already excellent. I love it. And I, I think everyone should read it. So that's Project Hail Mary. Make sure there's a link in the show notes for that as well. Um, the second, earlier we were talking about websites and companies that are using view and production and how there are a lot more than there used to be. If you're not aware, there is a, a website called viewtelescope.com where you can put in a URL and see exactly what stack they're using on the front end, uh, sometimes on the back end, to, to, just to see what they're using. So for example, if I go to my own website, give me one second to actually get there. There's also a web extension for Chrome and I believe Firefox so that you can, you can see these details on somebody's site. So I can see using View Telescope, I'm on View version 2.6. I'm using Nuxt. I have Tailwind. My deployment is static, rendering is universal. I'm also using View Router and View Meta. And Nuxt modules includes the content module and the color mode module. So I'm getting a lot of detail about my own site in this case. And you can do this on any View site. Anywhere that View is running in production, the, the plugin should light up and you can see what they're using. So yeah, just check that out as well. It's viewtelescope.com and the plugin is just called viewtelescope. I'll get links in the show notes for those. Lawrence, what pick do you have for us today? Nice. I, I might... Oh, actually, I already have it on, on my Google Chrome. I was like, I'm going to install it, but I actually already have it. So much yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I have so many plugins. <laughs> I just lost track of it. What do I want to share? Well, actually, I... I also have a small side project. This is a project that I run and it's called Critical Future Tech. It is a simple website where I talk with technologists, designers, and other folks that are looking into the ethics, morale, and impact of technology at large. And it's just a fun way for me to explore the theme of, well, how do we as professionals impact society? Even if you have a small app, you may be impacting someone or you are working in a larger company or in a larger product. And so it's always good to ask ourselves, what could be the good and the bad from what I'm building? And so if you like, you can listen to it or read. It's a pretty uh, nascent project still, but it's meant to just bring together people that are enthusiastic about paying attention to, to what we bring towards uh, the world as technologists. And yeah, that, that would be my pick. Sorry for the shameless plug. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. Shameless plugs are always welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is, mean, this I, is really yeah. cool. I'm, I'm wandering around the site now and to plug my own personal pick from just a second ago, I see you're using Nuxt. Uh, I am, yeah. Some modes, yeah. Doing a static deployment with View Router, View Meta, and View Internationalization. You've got the Nuxt color mode and internationalization plugins. Yeah. You, you just, yeah, yeah, that's a cool plugin, actually. Yeah, but I don't use it as often as I should, I guess. Yeah, but thanks for letting we, me share that. Of course, before we move off of that real quick, what inspired you to, to create a website about it, about this topic? Mainly, initially, it was mainly the fact that in the Portuguese ecosystem, the, the tech ecosystem, I felt that these sort of conversations were lacking. It, it was, as it is in any place, a lot of meetups about you know, like how to use Vue, how to use React, right? That's the that's what your bread and butter of the tech scene. But I felt that we it would be cool that Lisbon would Lisbon and Portugal in, in general would have that as well, as you see in other tech hubs, in of course in the US, but also in Paris, Berlin, uh, London, where this conversation happened on a on a later stage of, of a tech hub. And yeah, it's a way of, of putting the people that we have out there and also bringing new ways of thinking inside of our own uh, tech hub 
in our own tech ecosystem. So that was, uh, and I also just like it, you know, I just like a pretext to talk with cool people. <laughs> I mean, for, for anyone who doesn't yet have a project like this to, to talk to cool people, like I do a podcast. This is how I get to talk to cool people. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I highly yeah, like recommend it, it as, as part of a developer's career path. If you can find some way to, to be able to reach out instead of just saying, hey, just can I pick your brain? Be like, hey, can you come on my show? Hey, can you come talk on this thing? Hey, can you have, have a That's, context in which to have a conversation? It's been so helpful. Such an underrated technique to, to reach out to people. <laughs> I will admit I'm shamelessly uh, ripping it off from Adam Wathen. He created his, his podcast, Full Stack Radio, for the same reason. He just wanted to talk to cool people. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome pretext, honestly. And why wouldn't you? It would just be cool if yeah. you could just do it out of the blue. Exactly. On the note of critical future tech, I really like this concept. And I think it's important that we as developers kind of pay attention to what impact our profession has on the world and ways that we can improve the world around us. And not, not purely from, are we doing good with the technology we make, but are we doing good with the decisions that we make overall? There was a yeah. previous Views on View episode that I'll put in the show notes as well, episode 119, where we talked about climate change in the tech community and the impact that web development and the web in general has on climate change. It's not something we think about as we're you know, pushing PRs or doing code reviews, but something that yeah, yeah, has an impact true. at the end of the day. Yeah, it, it is definitely true. We don't work in a black box. There is an impact. And I guess in the tech world, it's one of the, the ways of having the fastest impact if you're if you're lucky to have a sort of viral product or, or whatever that may be. So keep in mind that we're affecting your users and, and communities around the world. So that's that's the idea. Just be attentive. Exactly. Lawrence, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you online if they want to either continue this conversation or talk about something else with you? They can find me pretty much anywhere using my handle, which is M-S-T-R-L-A-W, as in Master Law, or they can just go to mstrlaw.com, my website, and just email me or ping me on Twitter or anywhere. I will try to answer. Yeah, that's that's where you can find me. I usually just like steal the handle of any anything that comes up and then <laughs> that's it. <laughs> New service pops up and you just grab your name, right? Just grab, grab the handle. Yep. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. This has been such a good Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed the theme of, of micro frontends. Hope you all did as well. Yeah. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. You can find more of us at viewsonview.com or at devchat.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at Views on View. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. Hope you have a great day. We'll see you again next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.